An unpainted still life, a composite of identity, faith, and aspirations. Horizontal, a surface of heirlooms, something valuable, something cheap, a collection of reliquaries, votives, and trinkets, being both the center of ritual and an empty space, carrying and holding belief, made active only with intention. Welcome to episode 3 of A Common Craft. That was Radhika Apta reading the voice of the altar. In light of current events, I'd like to wish you all good health and happiness whilst we isolate ourselves from our usual daily rituals, and I hope this next hour or so can nurture some curiosity and calm. This episode is loosely based on objects, their makers and custodians, as well as how witchcraft appears visually in the world. I talked to artist Leon Sadler about mischief, lad culture and honouring yourself. Simon Costin about being custodian of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. And Sabbath Magazine's Elizabeth Crone about teenage witches and the publication's success. As always, I want to stress that not everyone I talk to identifies as a witch. But they offer ways of seeing, making and being that align with its archetype. And with its beauty, its struggle and its power. A lot of people really confuse witchcraft or Wicca, um, pagan religions, with devil worship. They feel that it's evil, that we're harming people, um, that we're putting spells over people without, you know, consulting them. And we're really not coming from that space at all. Central Queen of Sorcery. I keep a potion in my purse that's worse than any curse. No one wouldn't want to mess with me. Take a barracuda's nose and a dozen turtle toes and the venom of a sea anemone. I have urchin crab a blue stir the goop until it's gooey. That's my favorite rancid recipe. No, you wouldn't 
want to mess with me. Hiya. Hi, Leon. <laughs> I don't know what I can say. My name is Leon Sadler. I am 35 years old. I have a part-time job at a museum and I make stuff the rest of the time. I make comic books and I publish comic books and I make zines. At the moment I'm printing on clothes and making accessories and I'm making sculptures and I'm exhibiting in galleries and I'm putting my stuff in shops and I'm selling things online and I'm swapping things with people and I'm collaborating with people. For some reason, I saw a kinship in some conversations that we have had uh-huh. um, about making and maybe magic in terms of creativity uh, or how you are in the world, uh-huh. um, if you're interested in magic, let's say. And everybody keeps asking me about... Um, oh, you do the podcast and you know now you're out as a witch... <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. I haven't had my outing as, mm. a, as a witch yet. Mm. Um, and it's something which um, the podcast is still allowing me to explore how I feel about my personal connection to my belief systems and how I want to exist in the world. Mm. And then the creative one, because previously I would make work about witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't interest me at all. Mm-hmm. I. I feel I live it every day now. Yeah, it yeah, fulfills yeah. me in a very different way. And um, I wondered if there was anything in that that you found. I think, like, I've strongly had this idea of, like, Nen, this aura that surrounds things. We were watching those animation that we love called Hunter x Hunter. There was this moment where these characters go to an auction and they're auctioning off like artifacts that have like this aura called Nen and they're like the most powerful Nen objects in history or whatever and I think it just like really neatly describes that like unexplainable thing like you just sometimes something is just so good it's beyond beyond like explanation it's beyond words you just like it just like resonates and I don't know, like, like that's something that people people can like make those things happen. And I guess, like, yeah, like that's my ultimate goal is like charge things with like good men. And like, I'll judge what I'm doing, and I'll be like, this does not. The men is weak, <laughs> or like this. Yeah, this has got good good men. It's often like simple things. Maybe that's not right. But, like, yeah, that, like, aura. But I don't know. I think witchcraft is about also, like, setting up, like, a potential for something to happen or addressing, like, putting, like, these conditions or something. So you create conditions for, like, stuff to, like, unfold or whatever. Yeah. Making, putting yourself in a situation where things are going to, like, effortlessly materialise and be, be, like, good. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's, when have you noticed it? Yeah, people have asked me how do, how have I picked people for the podcast? Because mm. not everybody identifies as a witch. I mean, barely half the people. Mm. Um, and I guess because for me it seems so 
every day that kind of magic mm. I think aesthetically your the creation of the worlds the visual worlds that I see that surround you mm. have their own kind of magic um, and they have their own systems in them mm. and they have their own characters that exist all together in this world that seems full of like magic potential mm. but also mischievous potential and kind of um, dark potential as well it's very I think I found, I've always found your work very enlightening but it's also very aware of some kind of, of darkness as well mm. which I find compelling mm. really compelling it's interesting that what you said about your um, how you present yourself in the world how you choose to present yourself in the world and your work being very different hmm. because I s- sort of see them as the same thing ah. I just see you in the world and I see what you make in the world as the same things yeah um, hmm. yeah that, not to say that I don't think your work's autobiographical at all it's hmm. not that have you ever thought about the archetype of the witch or, or of the kind of the witch as a marginalised being I think that has empowered you or helped or I think more like the goblin more the goblin more like the idea of like a kind of a mischievous critter humanoid detached and kind of like behind the trees or something what is it about it little mischievous thing and it just feels like so just like a symbolic what was the archetype I don't know what's so powerful about it but it's like it's really independent and it's really like on on you can't really affect it or whatever like it just does its own thing and it's got its like energy like it's it's like constantly mischievous like it's mischievous without like any like Lost of appetite or something, just like more and more, like much mischief, and like I don't know, like curiosity, and um, it's like innocent as well, and they're like I don't know, I guess like yeah, the archetype of a goblin I think is like yeah, it's it's without um, there's like darkness coming out of it, but it's not like malicious, it's just like very natural and like very maybe that's the condition of it like being like a marginalised entity it's it's not like a welcome creature or something The cabin was cosy And hollyhocks grew Bright by the door Till his whisper crept through The sun on the sail Was yellow and warm Till she lifted the latch For a man or a storm Now the cabin falls to the winter wind And the walls cave in Where 
they kissed and sinned and the long white rain sweeps clean the room like a white haired witch with a long I don't know, do you want to talk about love, Brad? Mm. Was that getting off sub- subject? No, no, let's talk about it. We can talk about it. I guess in terms of like being an outsider. Yeah. Um, oh, just like the small town just does not have a place. I realised, like... I think I was thinking before this podcast, and I've not thought back to my upbringing. I never, like, relate things to, like, my childhood or, like, teenage years very much. I don't want to, like, give them too much credit for, like, who I am. But I realised, like, I used to dress pretty weird when I was a teenager. Like, as soon as I didn't have to wear a uniform anymore, I was, like, in the loft getting my mum and dad's old stuff from the 70s out and combining shit and, like, sewing things. And I didn't know what punk was, but I knew it had something to do with, like, safety pins and, like, exposed, like, sewing, stitching. And, like, straight away went fully, like, into, like, dressing however I wanted. And I realised, like, I got... I didn't get too much grief. Because I was so used to just keeping my head down and stuff. And, like, you just have, like, a bit of a defence mechanism so you don't notice people being horrible. Um, but, like, actually, I didn't know anyone else doing that. My younger brother, Steph, he was, like... I think we were just influencing each other and we were, like, pretty happy to just wear whatever... Um, but we were the only that was I didn't know anyone else who like dressed like me that was like the height of lad culture lad like culture. the most like I don't know like so counter so different to the world it is now mm. like in our formative years like it was so like violently misogynistic like to everyone uh, you were like either with it you were going to be like annihilated by it. like I don't know it was just like so violent in like not in terms of like people 
well, it was very aggressive, but like that psychic violence mm. was like just like off the scale mental. And I only just like, I, like, I've wondered why it's taken me so long to kind of like acknowledge and accept myself because the those formative years or whatever was so aggressively straight and homophobic. I never was like wanting to show people like this is who I am, look how individual I am, look how different I am, look how unique I am. It was never driven by that and to the point where I wanted to, I didn't know how to make it clear that like I wasn't trying to make a statement or like trying to show people this is how it should be or whatever. I think I was just completely unwilling to um, hide myself or something. Like I was completely unwilling to be squashed by by that stuff. In relation to like cross-dressing or being non-binary, like the world was just so different. Mm. And yeah, that's why I would come to Nottingham every weekend. Because in Nottingham they had like goths <laughs> and they had skaters and they had like like a variety of people. Yeah. That's so, why I'm here now still. Yeah. So I've always had that like association with it, of it being like an open and quite safe place. Um, is there any magic in cross dressing? Um there's something unexplainable. I think, I think that's why I think it's like magic. It's like when something is just like beyond words, beyond like logic. Like first time I put a wig on and of course I saw my reflection. I'd never like grown my hair long or anything before. I, just, I think it was like a grey wig that my friend had for a music video or something. And I borrowed it because I was having fun. Is that that or like a Halloween one? I I would like to note that the first time I saw you cross-dressing, you were dressed as... A witch. A witch. Yeah, let's talk about Halloween in a bit. <laughs> That's a really interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. But I think it was just like something just clicked. And I've never felt that feeling before. And I was like, oh, it makes sense. I make sense. Like, this is how I should look. This is like, regardless of everything, this is the right thing to do. Mm. And yeah, that was quite maybe I don't know. Kind of feels recent, but it was probably like five years ago or something. Um, but yeah, like Halloween. Yeah, let's talk about Halloween because I think that that connects. I remember um, uh, this particular Halloween because I was at the end of a tail end of a terribly bad breakup mm. and I was really quite miserable but I wasn't going to deny myself the pleasure of Halloween so I decided to wear a sheet mm. and was completely enclosed in a sheet which as a ghost which felt like um, the only way I could go out was mm. to kind of completely cover myself up but be <laughs> present, non-present yeah. um, and I just remember the absolute joy of your witch outfit um, mm. which was so fantastic <laughs> incredible to watch from behind the yeah. cut out holes of my uh, John Lewis double sheet <laughs> <laughs> standard double sheet that I had yeah um, but that, yeah I did 
um, I don't know if I, I it, it wasn't a surprise to see you dressed as um, a witch. Mm. Uh, I didn't know how much to put on it. It was Halloween. Yeah. But I did find it interesting that it was the one night of revelry and excitement and yeah. um, shifting. Yeah, I think it's that like, it's like the ultimate safe space. It's like so. There's no judgment. Everything makes sense because nothing makes sense. Like anything goes, and someone's not reading you because you've not like done it for what you're trying to do very well. Do you know what I mean? Like this is. It's so like it's a really a good place for like trying out things. The previous Halloween to that, I was like very closeted, cross-dressing in secret. My girlfriend didn't know anything about it. It was really like a really yeah dark time. <laughs> but I went. I, I really wanted to do something for Halloween. I've all. I've never like celebrated it or like done much. And I was like, I want to dress up like a witch. Really want to dress up like a witch. And no one was doing anything. And I was like, oh, I'll go to my friend's house and like watch a horror movie. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to watch a horror film dressed as a witch. I bought this, like, crap costume from um, Wilco's. But there was something, like, that safe, that feeling of, like, safeness or something. But, contrary to that, I was talking to my friend. Um, do you know Women's History Museum? In London? In No, it's, like, a group of artists called Women's History Museum. No, I no, I don't think so. Ah... My friend from Women's History Museum was... I was talking about this with her, and she's, like... The work they do is about clothing and dressing, and it's very queer, but it's very, like, femme, and... I don't know, it's really, really interesting. And she was like, no, Halloween's fucked up everything, because if you're, like, dressed over the top or whatever, anything, like, beyond, like, standard clothes, people are... Pro- like, it's programmed people to think, like, the only place for that is Halloween so you can't dress like that outside of Halloween and I think she quite like it's very much part of her like practice and being to like dress up daily like she her and her friends hate Halloween because because they're cons- yeah the it, one night of yeah and it's like that's mm. the only time that you can dress up and, and da, 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 da. so I thought that was really interesting like I hadn't thought of it like that so for me it was like a really safe place but actually like if you don't need that if you're already like totally comfortable with like dressing up like whatever um, being like fabulous every day um, the world doesn't want that they're like "Uh, is it Halloween? like she's like constantly all year it's not Halloween (laughs) (laughs) oh is it Halloween already? like and she's like absolutely sick of it yeah and I wonder like fuck if it was like Halloween this is I wanted to do that party like Halloween every month like a monthly Halloween party and it should just happen throughout the year and it's like yeah people want to dress up more than just once a year
people get to know us realize what we're doing is a very positive thing that we're working with the energies of the earth that we're very much tuned into a love consciousness that we're seeking to do those kinds of things that religions all around the world have at their very essence which is working with healing working with love working with achieving an inner balance and an inner communion with the divine So I'm Simon Costin, and I'm the custodian and director of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Cornwall. Um, let's talk about the museum then. So what is your role? What does that mean? Um, my role at the museum, as director of it, really, is more custodial. I see myself as... Um, one of the individuals that has had the honour of being able to nurture and look after the collection. Um, and I took over that role five years ago from Graham King, who was the previous director, who'd been there for 17-odd years. And prior to Graham was Cecil Williamson, who was the founder of the museum. And as of next year, the museum will have been in Boscastle for 60 years, so it's our big anniversary year. Why is the collection important, or why is it so special? Uh, the museum houses over sort of three, three and a half thousand objects, all relating to different aspects of witchcraft, magical practice, and the occult. So, as a repository, um, it's immensely important not only to the pagan community but also to academics um, because it's a social history museum really on one level and on another level it's a mu museum which um, cherishes the objects that have been used within magical practice um, and as such is totally unique really I mean you've, you've got things like the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford which funny enough I was at a few days ago um, which is an ethnographic museum However, it does have several cases of things like uh, divination tools and you know, uh, talismans and amulets and things like that. But there isn't really anywhere apart from the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic which has a, such a broad range of material because there's also an archive, library, etc., etc. So, as such, it's incredibly important. And... Um how come you became the custodian of it? Was it a personal interest? Was it an interest in the objects? Was it the mm -hmm. is it witchcraft as a subject? Um, my interest, oh dear, it goes back a very long way. I mean, I can I can remember and still have a number of drawings that I used to do as a child, which always seem to involve witches or monsters of some sort or fairy folk or whatever it was there was always this interest in the sort of the otherness the other other worlds that run alongside the one that we exist in so um that interest also spread to things like uh, folklore and british seasonal customs seasonal events so you'd have things um 
which I used to witness as a child when we'd go on holiday, so with my parents, moments when a community becomes something completely other, a moment where they they step out of their day-to-day being bank managers or a, an accountant or whatever it is, or a nurse, and they take on this this otherness, I suppose it, it is. And for that moment, that community becomes something else. And for me, it was, a, it was a moment of true magic when you saw a whole community transform itself in a way. So you have Padstow's May Day, you've got you know, ot- Barrel Burning in Ottery St Mary, the um, Abbot's Bromley Horn Dance, all of those things, all of those things, mumming plays, whatever it is, it's a moment where, where individuals become something else for a moment and, and let go of their day-to-day roles and responsibilities and step into this other way of being. And I was always fascinated by that. So it was sort of inevitable in a way that I'd be drawn towards magical practice because magical practice, again, is about communing, if you like, or, or, or recognising that there is a, a realm of being which is outside of the one that we normally experience. And I think... Any magical practitioner who begins to work with those sorts of energies, um, the first thing that gets transformed is themselves. Because by working with those things, you change yourself. You change the way you see the world, particularly, and the way you experience the world. Um, And I found that really, really fascinating. Quite frightening at first, because when, when when you... start reading a lot of those books and a lot of them talk about experiences that of course at that time you've never as a child or growing up as a teenager whatever you've never experienced so the minute you start looking at the world through this other lens it can be quite scary but then that's what was so thrilling and what drew me to it um and then of course it developed from from there yeah Yeah. i mean ritual practice is something that human beings have always done to make sense of the world and also to mark um, major moments in our lives like weddings and funerals and births and deaths and all of those things involve a degree of ritual and if you look at how ritualistic weddings are particularly if it's a church wedding or a pagan hand fasting it is a ritual it's a sort of it's a a series of um, processes that steps that have gone through which are very formalized um and the same with a funeral um not so much with births but um certainly with funerals and weddings but yes yeah, so i think ritual plays a part in all our lives and if you choose to use ritual outside of those things the prescribed uses of ritual practice if you start using ritual in a in terms of magical practice, that takes you into a whole other other realm, um, which is so again very very interesting because it alters the way that you see things. Mm. Um, and that's as somebody who went to art school and is a creative person anyway, um, using ritual creatively within my work is is often really rewarding. You know. Could you talk about that? That not sounds really. really interesting. <laughs> no, we're it's, not going down that. The thing is, it's too kind of personal yeah, to explain. I completely understand. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, and it's one of those you'd have to be there, yeah. sort of, for it to make 
sense. Yeah, the person and the sort of it, it's sort of, it's personal and mm. probably if I answered that, quite boring. If you did describe it from an outsider's, yes, yeah, yeah, it yeah, would feel yeah, a little bit like oh, well, I thought there'd be something, you know, um, yeah, at least some kind of crazy potion or um, yeah, exactly. something more exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if most you know people have been brought up with Harry Potter and and so they're expecting. Lights coming out of the end of a wand and a, whatever it is, but the, those things are happening to you internally. They're not happening in the external world. Yeah, to an extent. Going back then to the museum, um, it's important as a a, a a a collection that shows a most quite recent social history. Mm. What do you think the future for the museum is, or how will it play a part in um, the future of kind of? witchcraft or the popularity of witchcraft or people mm-hmm. coming around to yeah. seeing the world through this different lens does yeah. the museum yeah will it play a part in that can it play a part in that most most definitely i think that i mean the difference with the museum of witchcraft and magic is that and i've had this conversation with quite a few museum curators is that most objects when you put them in the context of a museum divorced from their surroundings and, and the way in which they've normally been used or perceived or seen, um, kind of neuters them. It kind of it strips away the, the, the personality of the object, if you like. Whereas with magical objects, a lot of them are still kind of fizzing. They're co- still kind of quite heavily charged. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, that's a, a, a key difference, I think, with the museum's collection and most other collections. And it's something that I see often in ethnographic museums too, is that those objects still have a lot of energy around them. Um, and whether you're susceptible to those things or not, I think it's still apparent. You know, I think a lot of people come to the museum who have no interest in, in particularly in, in magic, say, or whatever, but will often come and say that they found it very exhausting or that they came away with a headache or that we've had weird things with pieces of jewellery breaking. That's the running thing with the museum. Jewellery breaks in the museum. Chains and necklaces and uh, and some people complain about it, aren't very happy and some other people are completely astonished. That Unchaining, freeing. It's, yeah, I guess. Could look at it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't You've know what it is, but yeah, exactly. Throw away that jewelry, cheap jewelry. <laughs> but it, I think, in terms of its um, importance, and it, it it plays an ongoing role in terms of people who are exploring the magical will often come to the museum for research purposes, because not only can you glean so much information from those objects themselves. But also they give you clues as to how you might evolve your magical practice. You could you could look at some of the folk charms and think, well, okay, I've never actually thought of that kind of side of magical practice. Or you could look at things that are to do with high ritual magic. You know, we've got golden dawn things we've got. And you get, so it alters your magical path, I think, if you're interested in in the occult to begin with and that's why the museum is so important because so many people come there 
say they're, I don't know, Gardnerian Wiccan or something. And then they'll be opened up to all these other aspects of, of magical practice. And it does leave you changed, I think, when you, when you leave that place, especially if you start using the library and the archive, um, because it's so rich.
We are part of a whole. We are part of all of Mother Earth, and it's important to see that and to work in harmony with the other life forms. And by putting that thought there, if enough people held that image in their mind, real magic would start happening on the planet. People would start treating each other differently. They would start not only treating other humans differently, but plants and animals and the ground that we walk on, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink. doing like a fashion journalism masters and this is my main project throughout the master's degree um Sabat magazine so and then my tutor was also like kind of casually like a bit interested in witchcraft a bit interested in paganism and a bit like he was interested in like horror movies everything but like he was very uh encouraging so he was kind of like you should do something that's niche, like that's much better than doing something like another fashion magazine or lifestyle magazine or do something you're interested in. And yeah, sort of really yeah, encouraged me to kind of take it to market and uh, yeah. So how did Sabbath come about then? Um, well, I started, um, I was kind of, I was very visually interested in like 90s girl culture and like bedroom culture and bikini kill and that sort of thing and um, also like kind of interested in the aesthetic of like 90s girl power witchcraft um, was super superficial it was kind of like a hunch but like lots of my things are like a hunch so it started out being more about that and me sort of for my university like asking myself like where are like are there real teenage witches um, that's why we kind of had the maiden issue as the first issue and like we looked at it from this sort of like um, I guess like age generation phase of life perspective um, because I started out looking for teenage witches um, and I was like where are they um, are they cool are they fashionable and yes they were and they were on Instagram and it took a little while to, to kind of to get to that to realize that like they were actually like, in social media because first I, I went to Treadwells and I kind of talked to people and I, I gained an understanding of like what being a practicing modern witch is from interviewing people and then from from then on I was like but there has to be something that is like more aesthetic because like again I'm, I'm a very visual person um, and I think I it was kind of like People were being really lovely. It was like this kind of flow of like someone said, "Oh, you should talk to this person. You should talk to this person," and everyone kind of wanted to talk to me. Um, and I don't know like why they were so trusting, because like I was a university student who wanted to do a project, but they were all like giving me interviews and talking to me. 
Um, and I got in touch with Faye like Miss Turner. She's um, she's she's a sort of queer witch artist photographer. Um, she was she's American, but she was at the time in Glasgow. And I saw her like Instagram feed, and we she ended up doing some art for Sabbath. I interviewed her for the first Sabbath, and I feel like from from then on, like a lot of internet, social media, understanding doors opened for me. So I was just like, yeah, I went to LA to see a girl that she had like taken pictures of before, Segovia Meal. She's not as much online anymore, but she was this like poetry witch in LA, beautiful, uh, amazing sort of aesthetic as well. And, and yeah, I think from that point, I, I realized that that was very much like if a teenage witch exists today, she has an Instagram account and she's like sharing her rituals, she's sharing what she's doing. Um, and yeah, it was like very like exciting. Magic is real. And I don't see it as supernatural, but very much natural. Um, I had no idea. Um, I was sort of like, I just like, okay, embarrassing to admit, I had this like one fantasy that someone would like, that it would sell out and someone would sell a copy of it on eBay sometime. <laughs> and then it happened and I was like, oh my God. Like that was like the level of my, and we printed like the first print run of the Maiden issue um, was like a thousand copies. So it wasn't like, it's not a lot to sell out a thousand copies. But for me, that was like the pinnacle, like that someone would just resell it on eBay ever. Um, but no, it's been really great. It's like, um, I feel like we just hit like some sort of curve of like interest and both sort of mainstream interest, but also um, maybe that it was like more okay to be a little bit surface. Like it, it, it is more superficial naturally because especially the maiden issue and like then the mother issue is a little bit more considered and the grown issue is quite dark and weird but um i think especially the maiden issue was like me trying to figure out what what is modern witchcraft and it was a quite like a sort of blind surge um and um then that that should appeal to people who are also just getting into it kind of makes sense because yeah. like I was just getting into it yeah, yeah. Uh, so but I could never imagine like that it was so popular and yeah it's been really cool Leon Sadler, 
Simon Costin and Elizabeth Crane. The song incantations were composed by myself, Isabel Jones and Freya Barlow. Additional music was by Jerry Southern, Phil Kieran, Mick Smiley and Ursula the Witch from Disney's The Little Mermaid. This is episode three of four podcasts commissioned by Legion Projects for Waking the Witch, an exhibition looking at craft, ritual and the land and the ever-shifting archetype of the witch. If it were only facts that mattered, man now knows more about himself than he has ever known, and yet somehow he believes in himself less. There is a gap between what we know and what we feel. Many find that the occult can bridge that gap. It can take us beyond ourselves, to the infinite. It gives the gift of joy unto the hearts of men.